It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Nerds and geeks, hold on to your seats because it's about to go down. Welcome to Nerdorama, the voice of the nerd nation. I'm Mo Kelly, he's Tawala Sharp, and together we bring you your daily dose of nerd news, analysis, and conversations with the best and brightest of the nerdverse. During the Cold War space race, the U.S. not only had to defeat the Soviet Union in a competition over rocketry and technological feats, it also needed to overcome its own racial prejudice. Imagine that. In the fall of 57, the Soviet Union exploited America's raging civil rights battle, claiming that the supposed land of opportunity couldn't even provide equal rights for its citizens in their own country, let alone in space. Determined to regroup on both fronts, President Kennedy ordered the Pentagon to find a black astronaut. I'm talking about black in space, breaking the color barrier. The space race, a battle between America and the Soviet Union to conquer the next frontier. Ignition sequence start. Five, four, three, two, one. But beyond the rocketry, the world's two superpowers were engaged in another high stakes competition. The race to put the first black astronaut in space to win the United States would have to confront its ugly past. NASA had the opportunity to choose a black astronaut, and it didn't. America's racism would become a big win for its Cold War rival, the USSR. The Soviet Union was able to point to the hypocrisy of the U.S. government. Were we doing propaganda? Of course we were doing propaganda. But how did diversity in the skies become a power move in the chess match of the Cold War? There was buzz around NASA that the Russians had flown a Cuban. Who would become the world's first black astronaut? Which superpower would get there first? And what would it all mean for the struggle for civil rights? This is the untold story. We are in an era of brotherhood here in our land. Lorenz Grant is a Peabody and three-time Emmy Award-winning director of Black in Space, and she joins me now on the line. Ms. Grant, how are you today? I am fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Now, if my history is correct, the civil rights hypocrisy was used against the U.S. in the Civil War by the North against the South, used against the U.S. as a whole in World War One, World War II, the Vietnam War, and even the Cold War, and I suspect the Korean War along the way. What do you think that says about the U.S. more generally in the handling of civil rights over the period of centuries? You know, that is a great summary because that has happened and how your enemies can use that against you. You know, certainly in history, um, what I found fascinating was putting all those elements together in this space race, Cold War, civil rocks, civil rights sort of cauldron. I mean, all that was happening. And, you know, we often don't realize maybe or world leaders don't realize that that's the whole point 
of world combination and world leaders. You know, they're trying to poke the eye into the other. They're trying to call you out and show and spotlight your weaknesses. And certainly race, racial tensions and race relations have been, you know, the third rail of American politics. Let me be a little bit more philosophical for a moment. I have always been of the opinion we shouldn't necessarily depend on our entertainment outlets to educate the masses. In other words, I love the movie Hidden Figures, but it's not a documentary. What do you think about the state of movie making or documentarians and what they're doing as far as helping to educate the masses on subjects just like these? You know, well, I will look at it as uh, another or new golden age and a golden opportunity. We have more streaming services, you know, than we had before a decade ago. Certainly in the old studio system, you know, black stories and black filmmakers, you know, were almost virtually shut out. So now we have an opportunity in this, you know, we're all consuming so much media that I think we should have something in all aspects and all formats. We should come with it and hit, you know, bombard, you know, bombard and barrage everybody from hidden figures and movies and the narrative scape to documentaries to short form and long form. I think we need to get out there and have our stories because there's so many rich stories to tell. You know, I felt like this is a great element. You know, this is a story hiding in plain sight. You know, these are our famous first astronauts, our famous first African-American astronauts. And I feel like they should be more household names. They should be more well-known. There are kind of scientific rock stars or rock stars. And so I think in this landscape of consumption, of consuming media, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to provide and show the rich tapestry of the African-American experience. And that, you know, there's so many more stories to be on tap, to be tapped. I know of names like Mae Jameson, Guy Bluford, Ronald McNair, my fraternity brother, Charles Bolden, Michael Anderson, <laughs> but I'm not so sure America knows about the contributions of one Robert Lawrence. Tell me about him, please. Mm. Yes, it was um, great to, you know, include him, you know, in the documentary, you know, after the story of another African-American uh, candidate who did not make it as an astronaut, you know. Robert Lawrence Jr. was tapped, and he actually could have potentially gone to the moon. He, in a whole separate way, was actually kind of, an, he was an astronaut. But he was tragically killed in a training accident. And sort of back to this sort of cauldron of where we were in our nation, you know, here's the widow grieving, you know, lost her husband, you know, America lost its, you know, this great um, you know, soldier. And what happens? She gets a letter from some irate citizen who basically says to her, you know, I'm glad you said, because now there wow. will be no quote unquote coons on the moon. You know, this is what was happening in the country. This is towards the end of the sixties. You know, this is what, you know, our enemies, if you will, or our competitors, this is what they're picking up on. This is what they're noticing. This is what they're seeing. You know, here is this woman, the widow, and this is the type of hate. I'm like, how do you get hate mail like that? You know, so I wanted to include that. You know, there was some discussion about having insensitive language, but that's what they were said. And I think people need to know that. Like, this is something that happened, what she got. So the documentary is hopefully an effort to, to shine a light and praise and spotlight those that made it, but also reminder of those that didn't make it. 
Lorenz Grant, I know that you know your civil rights history and anyone who knows their civil rights history knows that the civil rights struggle was a complicated one. African-Americans were not uniform in their assessment of how we should move forward as far as obtaining our civil rights. Uh, with that said, how do you think you could characterize how African-Americans felt about um, one, being in the military at that time, and two, trying to be part of the space program, given the problems which seem to be more pressing right here on Earth? You know, that is a great question, and that is part of the rich tapestry of the African-American experience. And I wanted to show them both side to side, you know, while we're, you know, on the brink, the verge of, you know, mankind's greatest accomplishment the moon landing, you know, the day before, you know, the Poor People's March, you know, they protest. It's Reverend Ralph Abernathy. He's kicking up the mantle in the wake of the horrible assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And so there was this tension. You know, we wanted to have, you know, our first in science, our first in, you know, sports, as well as our first in space. And, you know, talking to one engineer, you know, he had a great story. He talked about how, you know, what one on campuses, you know, everybody knew the protest, but then they would leave alone, you know, the black engineers or scientists who were studying in the building because they knew they needed to be doing their work. And so I think there was an understanding. There certainly were various aspects of the civil rights movement on how to hit it, you know, do you protest? But that's what it was the point. You needed to protest in the court. You needed to be in the street. You needed to be on the front line of the newspaper. And you needed to be on the front line of the movement. Well, in this film, in this documentary with these astronauts, they were trying to be and were on the front line of space, of science, of exploration. You know, we have great minds. And, you know, telling this story is part of that conversation. Moving the story forward, it's, it's not just a history, it's it's the present. I mentioned someone by the name of Charles Bolden, uh, the, the administrator for, mm -hmm. for NASA. How do you think, and there are other people like Kwatsi Alibola who I know have worked inside on a technical aspect, are there more African Americans today, not just as far as uh, participating as astronauts, but in a technical capacity behind the scenes? There are, and actually I was at a recently a private screening and I met like a handful of African-American engineers at NASA presently. So that was just so exciting and heartwarming. You know, they're African-Americans in Silicon Valley. They're African-Americans. You know, we are everywhere. Um, you know, that is literally what the diaspora is, right? Mm -hmm. But um, many people don't know that. Um, don't get the attention because they're there busy doing the work, but their battles are just as real and just as fought as well. You know, they may not be on the lines of the newspaper or streaming, but you know, it's worth the attention and hopefully this documentary is kind of a reminder of a lens that we've got so much, you know, to contribute. And, you know, thus far we've had uh, 14 American astronauts, which is great. But that's out of more than 300 astronauts around the world. But it shows that we can have, there's room to grow. It shows we need more science minds, more tech minds, you know, behind the scenes. You know, we need more engineers. I think that is happening. NASA certainly making it a mission. So, you know, maybe this film could just be part of that conversation and even show kids. You know, I end the documentary intentionally with a montage of sort of the diversity in space, particularly all the, you know, the first African-Americans who got to make it up there. And just to see their excitement, their delight, their joy, they're living a dream. And hopefully that can show you, a child or even an adult, that, wow, they're out there. It's possible. Look, they've done it. 
now we need to just continue the pipeline so others can do it. Lorenz Grant is a Peabody and three-time Emmy Award-winning director of this new documentary, Black in Space, Breaking the Color Barrier. Ms. Grant, I salute you and, and the work that you're doing. I thank you for the history that you're sharing, and I want nothing but success for you into the future. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and feel free to follow us all on social media, hashtag Black in Space, at Lorenz Grant on Twitter, at Lorenz Grant Info on Instagram. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Bipow, the only online comic book review column that's fighting all of its demons trying to tear us apart. My name is Hannibal Taboo, and you can find everything that you'd like to know about me using at sign H-A-N-N-I, B as in bounce, A-L, T as in tough, A, B as in bounce, U. That's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, the rays of the sun, and everywhere that you want to be. These are reviews for books that came out May 19th, which was the birthday of Malcolm X, El-Haj Malik Al-Shabazz, 2021. There are four sections to the buy pile. The first is for, as noted, books labeled buy, which are so good they must be purchased immediately or from a series that has been good for a while. Let's start there with a new surprise, Shang-Chi number one from Marvel Comics with the creative team of Gene Luen Yang, D.K. Ruan, Triona Farrell, and Travis Lanham. Apologies for any names I mispronounced. With a movie on the horizon and communities hungry for representation, one of Marvel's most skilled hand-to-hand combatants has a new job and new responsibilities. These new circumstances are not easy for the title character to manage and will put him at odds with many people who could normally be allies. Shang-Chi's father ran a secret organization called the Five Weapons Society, which has nothing to do with the brilliant Five Weapons comic by Jimmy Robinson, not even the same Five Weapons. Anyway, this is based on five disciplines of martial combat. Shang-Chi has inherited the leadership of the group as Brother Hand, using only his body as a weapon, and leading the four half-siblings who lead the other disciplines, the Damian Wayne-ish Sister Dagger, Stick-using Brother Staff, the gigantic Sister Hammer, and the swashbuckling Brother Saber. Shang-Chi honestly has little interest in running an army of assassins, instead wanting to date an attractive lawyer, he knows. Unfortunately, as he tries to turn his family business from crime to crime fighting, Shades of Agents of Atlas, the natural inclinations of his siblings, especially his sister who calls herself Deadly Dagger, lean more towards Fiona from Burn Notice or Mouse from A Devil in a Blue Dress. That creates wonderful creative tension between the subordinate and apparent leaders. Spider-Man pops up as a complication here and leads to Shang-Chi dropping a very effective line. What does your spider sense tell you? That is a fantastic thematic element that leads Shang-Chi to make a very difficult decision and leads his character in an unexpected direction. The script by Jean Luen Yang is really very good, developing the disparate elements of Shang-Chi's life, pulling him in every direction as he aims to stay true to himself. The artwork from D.K. Ruan, Triona Farrell, and Travis Lanham deliver some big surprises and fast-cut styled action sequences, as well as an intimate dinner, and the Spider-Man depiction here does a lot of acting with body language without the benefits of facial expressions. 
is a rock-solid adventure storytelling set in a familiar superheroic world, so that rating would be by. Next up, we have Nightwing number 80 from DC Comics with the creative team of Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo, Adriana Lucas, and Wes Abbott. You should know those names if you heard any of the reviews we did for Suicide Squad. With a wonderful eye for detail, outstanding dialogue, riveting visual storytelling, and a deft, careful plot, this new era for the erstwhile boy wonder is a wonder to behold. Dick Grayson has a lot going on. The death of one of his father figures, Alfred Pennyworth, has left him rich. Within the first 24 hours of that, all shown last issue, he's bought food for a homeless encampment, rented a hotel room for a homeless man and his son, had his wallet stolen, and fallen back into bed with his on-again, off-again ex, Barbara Gordon, herself an extrajudicial vigilante on the keyboards called Oracle. He wakes up to police detectives at the door asking about the murder of the homeless man in question from the hotel room. This sends the title character on a hunt for information and the missing son, which requires an assist from his brother, Tim Drake. Quote, thought of by many as the best Robin. I totally get it. There's a great sibling-style banter and motion between the two of them. The visual storytelling by Bruno Redondo, Adriana Lucas, and Wes Abbott does fantastic work with both small details, check the t-shirt Grayson is wearing early in the issue, and facial expressions. There's a Kevin McGuire-worthy silent panel after an awkward question is asked matched only by the wonderful and innovative means of showing motion and action that steadily drives the plot forward. Add to that Tom Taylor throwing down the script with a really solid last page introduction to the true antagonist foreshadowed throughout the plot, and you've got a winner on your hands that rating would be by. Next up, we have got Star Trek Year 5 number 20 from IDW Publishing with the creative team of Brandon Easton, Sylvia Califano, DC Alonso, and Neil Yuyutake. A conflict between conscience and continuity embroils the second crew of a starship called Enterprise with a number of science fiction and political overtones to complicate things. Commander Spock is front and center for change and the cost of it could literally be everything. The crew's Tholian guest called Bright Eyes can literally hear something coming from the planet Vulcan, something that doesn't make sense. An away team including Spock, Kirk, the always complaining Bones, Bright Eyes, and the captain discovers a tower that most of them remember, but Bright Eyes insists is an anomaly. Yada, 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 Spock gets cast back through time to the Time of Awakening, a period which created the schism between the Vulcan people and their soon-to-be Romulan kindred. What's great about Brandon Eason's script is the gentle hand it uses to showcase the horrors of things like children seized en masse by the state without needing to be ham-fisted in the representation. It shows the civilized people of the planet Vulcan in a much more repressive, violent state as they sought to implement, quote, the re-education process, a horrifying term, enforced at the edge of a blade and the business end of a phaser. Then there's the artwork by Sylvia Califano, DC Alonso, and Neil Yuyutake, which does some really surprising things with how the Tholians view time, that's a fun surprise, uses silhouettes effectively, dreams up a new Starfleet of interesting determination, and delivers panels east and left without dialogue, in a manner that drips with intensity and meaning. The science fiction bona fides here are deep, all while looking at political issues that could be seen in our headlines, not just those of 200 years from now. The only criticism that could be leveled here is that, as many periodical stories go, this builds a first act and digs into a second, but doesn't come to even a partial conclusion, leaving the next issue to start at climactic points. Still, the deafness of many of the elements here make this worth buying only to reread and reabsorb some of the story points. That rating would be buy.
The next section of our reviews is called Honorable Mentions. It's for books that, are, I mean, they're good, but they may not have actually been good enough. There's nothing on that pile this week, which sometimes can be bad, but let's just, let's just forge ahead. The next section of our reviews is called The Meh Pile, for books that, well, they happen. There were good elements, there were bad elements, but in the end, it all just kind of washed out in a wave of gray. There, we find Heroes Reborn number three from Marvel Comics with a creative team of Jason Aaron, Federico Vicente, Ed McGinnis, Matt Miller, Mark Morales, Matthew Wilson, and Corey Pettit. Much like the first two-thirds of the first Wonder Woman movie, there's an interesting story hiding behind the corporate needs of the crossover. Unlike that film, if you make your way through the weeds of copyright skirting remixes of things you know, you'll find that the interesting story in question lies cold, strangled by its limitations. Stanley Stewart is the fastest mortal alive, a speedster with focus issues that makes Bart Allen look like Max Mercury. Writer Jason Aaron does a fantastic job of conveying what was once called Pietro Maximoff Syndrome, the difference in perception for someone whose mind moves at super speed from the rest of us. Had he applied his skills to an issue of The Flash, or even a book focused on Quicksilver, it might have been something. Here, however, everything in the plot, from a throwaway aside from The Silver Witch, Wanda Maximoff using both her power and her brother's, to Blur's own method of overcoming his own stumbles in this issue, to even the backup story, is focused on saying everything here is wrong somehow a heavy-handed message that braces the reader for the eventual whiplash snap of this being washed away at the end of the event. It should also be noted that the art presented by Federico Vicente, Matt Miller, and Corey Pettit again would have made one heck of a spotlight in the series of any non-crossover-bound speedster, as they really understand the applications and spatial issues with presenting rapid motion this way. The Achilles heel here remains the rug already being pulled out from the bottom of this narrative. There's a backup about Maya Lopez, the deaf heroine called Echo, who has photographic reflexes like Taskmaster, sitting in Arkham, I mean Ravencroft, with the Phoenix Force, choosing to keep it from exercising its power. This suffers from the same weak foundation as the main story, but has at its credit the skilled hands of Ed McGinnis, Mark Morales, Matthew Wilson, and again Corey Pettit to at least elevate it as far as its conceptions will allow. To have assembled such a powerful group of talents and have them perform the equivalent of music from the Chuck E. Cheese catalog is its own kind of frustration, but that's just where we are. That rating would be meh. The final section of our views is called No Just No, and it's for books that are abjectly terrible and should not be purchased under any circumstances. And there, we find Flash number 770 from DC Comics with a creative team of Jeremy Adams, Jack Herbert, Brandon Peterson, Kevin McGuire, Michael Atier, and Steve Wands. With a heavy serving of tropes ladled all over its script, the Wally West Quantum Leap to Escape Consequences Tour continues by dropping the modern-day speedster into World War II for a chance to play out that superhero cliche everyone talks about but literally has no value to actually enact in a modern book. Ignoring again that unpleasantness with Wally West, you know, where he spree-killed a bunch of people, this issue follows the Jay Garrick version of The Flash and the Happy Terrell version of The Ray, heading into danger to stop the Nazis from getting the Spear of Destiny. Sound familiar? It should be. Versions of this plot have appeared in comics for a long, long time. Few of them have been as beautifully rendered as this work by Jack Herbert, Brandon Peterson, Kevin McGuire, Michael Atiyeh, and Steve Wands. That lighting effect on the faces outside the Oval Office alone? Yes. But that's sadly a peripheral concern. Jeremy Adams' script doesn't follow the rule that endings should be inevitable and surprising, because there are a lot of other ways for this to have played out, maybe even better ways. And nothing happened here that wasn't pretty much by the book. There's an exhaustion to that 
and maybe reinvoking Nazis as often as we have, may have used the Beetlejuice or Candyman principle and literally summoned them up. But hey, here we are. Wally West's involvement is unlikely to have changed the tide of fixed points in time, and his effect on the faith of Happy Terrell is likewise uninspired in its butterfly effect. Let's not even get on how little effect the supporting cast of Oliver Queen, Michael Holt, and Barry Hallen had on the plot. The story itself seems to be gaining steam rather than losing it, which is tragic in and of itself, but hopefully this won't go on much longer. That rating would be no, just no. With a bunch of purchases at least, we can call this week a win. I'm very happy to be back here with you. I'm very grateful to Mo and Tuala for having me here week after week to bring these reviews to you. Thank you so much for your time. Again, my name is Hannibal Taboo. Please wear your masks. Please get vaccinated. And I'll see you next time. Hey guys, Mo Kelly here. The new daily Nerdorama podcast is featured on iHeartRadio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast feed to get your daily dose of nerd news. Also available on iTunes, Spreaker, and all the top podcasting apps. It's free and perfect for everyone in your nerd family. Nerdorama is produced by Tuala Sharp and continues to be a segment on the Mo Kelly Show. Weekends on KFI Los Angeles. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nerdorama News. Until next time, keep it comic. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.